verses 8 through 14, uh, but we focused on Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. And Luke writes there, it's, a, it's an account of the angels coming to the shepherds. And the angel says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. We've taken these, this, this, one, this one scripture, and really there's three declarations within that one scripture. That the coming of Jesus would bring good news that would cause great joy and it would be for all the people. Our first week we talked about how Christmas time is a time of salvation. That Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus marked the coming salvation, not only of the Jews that they had been waiting for for centuries and centuries, but also unto the Gentiles. And we looked at three different aspects of salvation that we've been saved from sin and self-reliance. We've been saved for sonship, and what that means is you've been saved to be a son of God, to be a, a, not only a firstborn, but really as the only son of God. God looks at you as if you are his only son. You are a co-heir with Christ. In the same way that the Father looks at the Son, Jesus, he looks at you because of Jesus. You've been saved for sonship. And lastly, we've been saved by grace through faith. And really the main point in all that is we've got to, as a people, stop trying to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to earn favor with God. Maureen shared about the favor of God, of how his favor is with us. Well, favor means it's undeserved. You have favor because you don't deserve it, but I have favor on you. Okay, God has favor, has given you his favor. He's given you his grace, not because of anything that you've done but because of what Jesus has done and out of his great love for you and I. The next part in the, in the series was the, the declaration that it would bring great joy. Last week we, we talked about great joy as a time of celebration, that the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, marked a time for celebration. And it was a celebration of God's love. We looked at the account in John when Jesus was about to get arrested and, and be sentenced to die. He was spending his last, time, his last moments with the disciples speaking to them. And he was saying to them, you grieve now, but your grief is going to be soon turned to joy because of his death and his resurrection. Because of what Jesus did, man is no longer on the outside looking in when it comes to the presence of God. There used to be what was called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And only the high priest could go in. And he could only go in and he could only be in the presence of God after he did a bunch of things. After he offered certain sacrifices for his own sin. But in the account of Jesus' death, it says that the, the veil of the temple was torn. In other words, that there was no longer separation because of what Jesus did. We have direct access to the Father through the Holy Spirit because Jesus has given through his blood, first and foremost, but through the Holy Spirit, God resides in each and every one of us. And one of the points I made last week was that Jesus doesn't have to mediate for you and me anymore. What I mean, what I mean by that is we don't have to say, Jesus, can you go, can you go to the Father? Can you go to God? And can, can you ask this for me? Can you do this for me? You can go in. You have direct access to the presence of God because his Holy Spirit lives in you. Okay, Paul tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That wherever we go, that's where the temple is. Wherever we go, that's where the most holy place is because God is with us. And I also mentioned of how the Apostle John, he always referred to himself, or he often referred to himself as the one 
that was loved the most, the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved the most. And, and I talked of how that's not an arrogant thing, but it's an understanding of who he was in Christ, that you can also make that same claim that you are the one he loves most. Because God is all-knowing, God is omniscient, God is all-powerful. He can love you as if you're his only child and love someone else as if he's their, he or she's their only child as well. You get all of him all the time. God doesn't have to divide his attention. He has all power that he can give you the fullness of himself, and he's done that through the Holy Spirit. The good news was largely about, or the good news is about salvation through Jesus. It focused on Jesus, the God in the flesh. Great joy is about celebrating God's love and presence through the Holy Spirit. All people, the one that we will focus on today, is about God reconciling the world to himself and restoring our initial relationship. So when we talk about how this message will be for all people, it's a time for reconciliation. Good news focused on the Son of God and us becoming sons through Him. Great joy focuses on the, 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 the joy we have through the Holy Spirit and really for all people is the Father restoring us to Himself. So within this story, you have a great picture of the Trinity, the, each, each aspect of the Godhead at work, the Son of God that brings salvation, the Holy Spirit that, that brings the presence of God to within every one of our hearts, and the reconciliation of God restoring the relationship that once was perfect, but was interrupted by sin. So for all people, a time of reconciliation. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels go on to say, it says, the heavenly host appeared with them and they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When we speak of reconciliation, we're really talking about peace. That the birth of Jesus was a time for peace. And not peace as the world knows it, but peace that only God can give. The word reconcile, in the Greek it means to restore relations between. Okay, the word that's used, and that's, that's the definition of the English word, reconcile. To restore relations between. And there's really three aspects of this. Three ways that the relations have been restored. First and foremost, relation has been restored between man and God. Okay, we were once separated, but the coming of Jesus, it brought us peace with God. Okay, this is our salvation. Secondly, man has been reconciled with his own heart. Remember when, when Jesus said, when the Spirit of God led the prophets and said, Behold, I, in, that, in that time I will bring a new covenant. said, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart so that no longer are you in conflict with your own heart, but you can be at peace with yourself because I'm going to give you my presence. And because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we can, we can have faith, we can cling to Jesus, and we can have peace within our own hearts. There are many Christians that they've made peace with God and they've been saved, but so many of them walk without the peace of God in their hearts. They're anxious about so much. They worry about so much. They, they're not at peace. They don't have, they're not walking with the peace of God. But God has done more than just save us from hell. He's, he's come to bring us life and joy and peace in the here and now. So the third aspect of this reconciliation is between man and fellow man. Peace of God with others. This is really 
about the Great Commission. Okay, the first two aspects really deal with you, that God has saved you and God has, you know, he's made peace. You've been able to make peace with him and you've been saved. God says, I've given you my Holy Spirit. I want you to walk with my peace. But then the last thing he says, he says, but now you need to minister this peace. Now this peace, it's not just for you, but it's for all people. And for those of us that have received it, it is now our calling and our commission to minister this peace to others. So that's going to be our focus is really on that third aspect of peace, ministering peace to others. Now the fact that we needed reconciliation means that there was conflict to begin with, right? See, the birth of Christ, it marked God's coming reconciliation. But first he had to deal with the conflict, and that conflict simply stated was sin. When sin came into the world, there was a, an automatic and immediate separation from God. We're not, you know, all of us are, are wise enough to see that conflict exists everywhere you look. You don't have to go far to find conflict, right? You can find it within your own family sometimes. <laughs> but conflict, I'm not, peace, peace. We're going to minister peace to you today. Peace be with you. Conflict is all around us. It exists all over the world, and the world has tried everything it could think of to end conflicts. It has tried education. It has tried, in some sometimes just ignorance. Let's just ignore something, and and it'll happen. It's tried wars. It's tried submission. Let's just give in. That'll let's make peace. But all it does, what does it do? It creates more conflict. And more conflict. So every idea that the world has come up with to rid the world of conflict has only caused more of it. So something is not working. Because all of these ideas only lead to worse things. What we have to understand is that every conflict is spiritual in nature. The conflict that the world has is spiritual in nature. Sin. So the only answer... The only peace has to be spiritual in nature as well. We're not ministering worldly peace. Okay, now we sing songs at Christmas time of peace to the you know peace on earth, peace to all men. It seems like a far-fetched fantasy. There can never be world peace. Okay, that's always the joke when it comes to like pageants and stuff. Well, what do you? I want world peace. God is the only one that can bring world peace because the conflict is spiritual in nature. The solution must be spiritual in nature as well. The only way to have peace on earth is through a transformed heart and mind that has been given to Jesus. I'm going to go off on a little tangent just for, just for a minute. See, we have a lot of conflict when it comes to certain issues. We want to take sides. But there are no right sides of issues. There are no winning sides of issues. Because this is what happens. When people get on a side of an issue and all their focus is on being right, winning that battle, winning that issue, what happens is their hearts grow cold toward those that are on the other side of that issue. There are only hearts that have received Jesus and hearts that have not. That's, I, I truly believe that when God looks upon his people, he doesn't see murderer, adulterer, Fornicate. He doesn't. He doesn't. Lay, he sees covered by Jesus, 
and not covered by Jesus. Has received the gift, has not received the gift. So his only, his only objective is to get that person to receive his son. It's not about, well, he's on the right side of this issue. She's not. She's on the right side, he's not. It's not about that. It's about a heart that has received Jesus or a heart that has not received Jesus. If anything, when we take sides, it often, like I said before, it often causes the hearts of the one side to grow cold toward the hearts of the other. I think we can easily see that within our society today. That there is such a, there is such a, a defined dividing line now. That if you're on this side of the issue, these people hate you. If you're on that side of the issue, these people hate you. And think that you're horrible on them. And it's, all it does is create more conflict and more problems. This is not the Great Commission in action. This is not the peace that God has given us through Jesus. But through Jesus, reconciliation has been made. One of Jesus' names is what? The Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. This reconciliation can only happen through Jesus. You and I are naturally self-centered. Okay, I don't. I don't think we need to. We need a big revelation. We know that we're naturally self-centered. We we naturally think of ourselves first, and we have to to really work at submitting to the Spirit so that we think of others first and, and put ourselves um, on the back burner. It's only when people surrender to God that they can find true peace, and He's got to be the source of all that we need. Okay. Too many Christians, they, they love Jesus, they've received him, but he's, he's still not the source of all their needs. They still look to their spouse, or they look to their kids, or they look to their job, or they look to their possessions, or they look to their politics that, to, to fill a need that still hasn't been filled, that can only be filled by Jesus. Because they think, well, if only this was different, if only my relationship with my husband was different, if only my wife was different, I would, I would be more fulfilled. But the truth is, that's not going to... It may for a moment, for a time, but unless Jesus is fulfilled in that place, there's always going to be a void. James 4, 1 and 2, I've put the scripture up there. James says to the people, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Instead, we look to other things. And also in Philippians, Paul writes, he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we prayed half as much as we complain about things, we would be much more at peace. Because when, when you begin to pray about these things, and, and notice what Paul says when you pray with thanksgiving, even, even when, you're, even when you're, you're coming and you're struggling, you still pray with thanksgiving because of who God is. When you pray with thanksgiving, your heart begins to change. Because the presence of God begins to manifest itself and you realize, okay, God, yeah, I'm struggling, but you're God. I trust you. And you begin to have peace, a peace that the world can't offer you, a peace that your spouse can't give you, a peace that your kids can't give you, a peace that only the Lord can give you. 
I like this quote from Rick Warren. He says, There will never be peace in the world until there's peace within nations. There will never be peace within nations until there's peace in our communities. There will never be peace within our communities until there's peace within our families. And there will never be peace within our families until there's peace in our own hearts. And there will never be peace in the individual hearts of man until Jesus reigns in them. So it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with him reigning and being the prince of peace in your own heart. And then from that, you become ministers of peace and and peace goes out. But when you're trying to get peace from another source, it's only going to end up in more conflict. This is a peace that the world cannot give and it doesn't know how to give. And that's the part that we need to understand. It's not only that the world can't give it to you, but they don't know how. They don't know where to start to give you this kind of peace. And as I said before, the third aspect of reconciliation, peace with others, is really going to be our main focus. But you cannot be a minister of peace. You cannot share peace, the peace of God with others if you don't yourself first have the peace of God in your heart. You've maybe been saved and you've turned your heart over to him and, and you say, he's my salvation. But if you aren't walking in peace, that doesn't mean everything's perfect, but it means that you strive daily. You say, Lord, you're my peace. I, even when things don't make sense, I'm going to trust in you. If you don't have that kind of peace, how can you ever minister that peace to others? The truth is we can't. We can't tell others of his love and his goodness if we're not sure that we're loved and God has given us his goodness. Understand what I'm saying? So we're going to look to the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That'll be the bulk of our focus today. And Paul speaks of a ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. I want to start in verse 11. Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it's living and it's active. Bring it to life once again. Holy, give us your Holy Spirit for understanding for comprehension, may, may our hearts be open to receive, our eyes open to see, and our ears open to hear, Lord, all that you have for us today. And may we walk out of here having experienced your presence, having met with you, having heard from you. And may it change us, Lord, from the inside out. I thank you for the, the privilege of being your spokesperson. I ask and plead for your anointing. I can't do this without you. May everything I speak, Lord, be of you and not of my own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul begins and he says, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. So the first question is, do we know what it means to fear the Lord? Okay, the fear of the Lord is not being scared of God, 
but it's an issue of respect, reverence. Okay, I've, I've heard it compared sometimes to, to a police officer that you only respect the police when you know they're there. When, you, when you're aware that they're watching you, you're going to make sure you're driving the speed limit. If they're, you know, you're going to make sure you're following the laws. If you don't know they're there, you kind of, you don't think about it. Until you pass by one and see them all of a sudden, you slam on your brakes. And that's not a good thing to do. Okay, sometimes with God, that's what people do. They, they kind of forget that he's there and they just go about their own lives until they need something. Or until, oh yeah, you know, I've got to go to God. But what it means to fear the Lord is to understand who he is. Now, we have direct access to God, okay? He has made himself available to us through his Holy Spirit. But we also have to understand that he is still God. We are not equals with God. He is the potter, we're the clay. He is the creator, we are the creation. And, we, and even though Jesus says, I now call you my friends, we've got to understand who he is. He is still God. He is still holy and just, and you are not, apart from Jesus. And sometimes we, we, we carry ourselves as if God needs our help and our counsel. So, okay, God, let me, let me help you out here. Let me, because this isn't working. So, God, th- this is my idea. Here are my plans. It doesn't work like that. See, Paul understood what it meant to fear, to fear the Lord. Paul was the, on the other side of that, where he didn't, he thought he feared God, but he came to realize that I'm doing things my own way. I've made my own rules. I've been following this law, and it's not about that. So what changed in him was his respect, his reverence for God. Okay? Pharisees were very zealous for God, but they didn't have the proper fear of the Lord. When Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul's heart changed, and he now knew what it meant to fear the Lord. And he said, because we know this, we do our best to persuade men. And he even says, we try. He admits, I'm not going to be able to persuade everyone, but I try my best. He says later in Corinthians, just a couple chapters later, he says, I do, I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. He's saying, because of who Jesus is, because I understand now how holy he is and how perfect he is, I want to persuade others to understand this as well. Until we fully surrender to God. Okay, this is really Paul saying, I've had peace with God. You know, I've made peace with God. I've been saved, but I also walk with the peace of God. Until we understand that, we are not going to be effective in ministering to others and persuading others for the sake of the gospel. And then the next thing Paul says, he says, he says, I hope, or what we are is plain to God, and I hope that it is plain to you as well. So the second question is, is who you are, is who we really are, plain to others? It's plain to God. God's not a fool. He doesn't, nothing is hidden from him. So whatever you are, God knows it. But is what we are in Christ, Okay, not what you think you are, but what the Bible says we are in Christ. Is that plain to others? Do you carry yourself in a way that others see, well, you know you're not perfect, but there's, you carry yourself in, just in this way that is, you know, it, it reaches me, it, it speaks to me, it, it makes me respect you and, and 
and respect what you believe. So is who you really are in Christ plain to others? Do you live with the peace of God? Are you able to, no matter what others think or how chaotic things become, are you able to hold to the truth of his word and live with peace? The same kind of peace that allowed Jesus to rest during a storm? To say, I'm not worried about this. I've got the peace of God. And sometimes people... Sometimes people who don't have that peace from the outside looking in, they say, well, you don't care. You're doing nothing. It's like, no, it's not. I'm praying. I'm trusting in the Lord. I just have peace. I'm not going to freak out over every little thing. I'm not perfect in this. There are still times. There are still certain aspects of my life that I haven't, you know, I haven't fully developed this and I'm working on it. And you are too. But for the most part, my understanding has been changed. And and in in a lot of situations, I walk with the peace of God that I didn't used to before. And I hope that you do too. Paul says, if we seem crazy to you, it's because we're so zealous for God. If we seem like we're in our right mind, and then we want you to imitate that. Because to the people who don't understand, you seem crazy. Okay, Maureen talked about being radical, and they said, wow, you're, okay, radical doesn't mean being extreme, doing things to get attention, but that you live with such peace that people think, you're crazy. Aren't you worried about this? Aren't you freaked out about this? No, I'm not. And if it seems like you're in your right mind, then that's good, because we're, it's, for, it's for each other's sake that we understand, hey, yeah, we got peace, we're okay. We're not crazy, God knows what he's doing. In verse 14, Paul says this. He says, Christ's love compels us. I'll notice he was compelled by Christ's love for others, not by his own love for Christ. God is not moved by how much you love him. Because God's love does not matter, does not depend on what you do or, or how much you do for him. He loves you with an everlasting love regardless of what you do. So your love for God will never move him. He's moved by his love for you. And Paul's saying, because of Christ's love for man, we're compelled, because we want to be like Christ, we want to share this message. We're compelled, we are urged, we are crowded by, hemmed in. Okay, that's what compelled means. He's saying, we feel hemmed in, we feel like we have to do this, because Jesus loves people so much, and we want to be like him. We feel like we have to do this, or we're going to... Or, or we're going to suffer, we're going to feel bad, not suffer at God's hand, but feel like it's, I just got so much of Christ's love in me that it would hurt to keep it to myself. It's Christ's love for man that compels, not our love for God. See, Paul shifts the focus from himself, and I understand what it means to fear the Lord, and I hope that what I am is clear to you. He said, but it's not about me. It's Christ's love that compels me. It's not about us anymore. And he says that in verse 15, or actually starting in verse 14. He says, because one died for all, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What he's saying, he's saying, it's not about me anymore. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about what he wants. It's about how he leads us. Because we have his love and it's our Commission. It's our call to share that love. 
Well, let's pick it up in verse 16. Paul goes on to write, he says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul talks about this ministry we've been given as believers called the ministry of reconciliation. Remember, reconciliation is about peace. It's about restoring relations between. So he's given us this ministry. God has given us this ministry. This is more than just living at peace with others. See, sometimes that's as far as we go. We say, well, I'll just live at peace with others. This is about ministering the peace of God to others, even when they don't receive it well, even when they don't respond the way we want. It's our calling and our commission to minister the peace of God, to minister the fact that God has reconciled man to himself. I think it's true that most Christians feel compelled to do something for God, and that's a good thing. But where we, where we mess it up is when we try to think of how it's supposed to be done. Paul says, this is what your compulsion should look like. The first thing he says is, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So if we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view, what's the opposite of that? It's kingdom of God. If it's not of the world, and then we need to look at them from the kingdom of God view, right? The kingdom of heaven a kingdom of God perspective. It's not simply about trying to imitate what Jesus did on the earth. Like Paul says, we once regarded Christ this way. In other words, we try to just do what he did. But it's understanding that that Jesus is still alive today, that he is within each and every one of us, that he is still leading us and guiding us if we give him the opportunity to. Does that make sense? It's not just about imitating what Jesus did because he's still alive so it's about asking him what what would you have us do you're alive you're our king you're leading us God what step do we take Jesus what what do we do here next and too many people get stuck in they've okay this is in the Bible so I'm going to do what it says there and they don't depend on the God that's still alive today and there's a big difference between the two Paul said, we once regarded Christ this way, but we don't look at him from a worldly point of view, just what he did on earth, but we look at him from the point of view that he is now in heaven and he is reigning over us and he has given us his Holy Spirit and he leads us and he empowers us to do what he did on earth. His ministry continues. Because in verse 17, what's Paul say? Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. You've been born again. So don't look at things from the old perspective anymore because when you gave your heart to God, you were born anew. That's what born again means. Born from the beginning. 
not just adding Jesus, but you basically are, are saying, I'm starting over. I need a new, fresh perspective. Now, it's hard for us in the flesh to forget everything we've learned. But we've got to look to Jesus and say, Lord, renew my mind. Help me to see things from a completely different perspective. I don't want to see it from the worldly point of view anymore. I want to see it from your point of view. And it's a constant battle. That's why the, the Bible talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Because it is. It's a constant battle. The flesh wants to keep pulling us in and saying, yeah, look at it this way. Remember this. You're angry. You need to respond this way. Look what that person did. When the spirit wants to say, don't, don't follow your emotions. Trust in me. I know what I'm doing. This is going to be much more powerful. It's going to be much more effective. Let me lead you. Let me empower you. It's not an easy battle sometimes. But it's a constant battle that we have to be aware of. Now, while it's true that only people who receive Jesus have become new, what we need to understand is that every single person is one decision away from becoming a new creation. Every single person is one decision away in an instant. Not one decision and then a few follow-up things. One honest decision away from becoming equal to you and I in Christ. Regardless of how long you serve the Lord. They're one decision away. John 1.12 says, to all, he, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who receive him. Not to all who receive him and then give, give evidence that they're going to follow up on this. Not to all who receive him and then sign a commitment that I'm going to do this, I'm going to give this. All who receive him become children of God. That's in John 1.12. So every person is one decision away from becoming a new creation. So Paul goes on to say, he says, God reconciled himself... It reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And if you notice when he says the ministry of reconciliation, there's a, a colon there, which means here's what the, rec- the ministry of reconciliation is. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now, Paul just said this, but he says it again for emphasis. God reconciled the world to himself through Christ. It's not anything you did or can do. And he does not count their sins against them. So the ministry of reconciliation is this, that God brought peace to the world, brought them back to himself through Christ by not counting their sins against them because Jesus is the one who paid for sins. So the only condition for peace with God, the only condition for reconciliation is Jesus. If people today truly put him number one, that he was the top priority instead of their relationships or their jobs or their kids or their possessions or their politics or their personal feelings and experiences, if Jesus was number one, he would lead them into a biblical Christ-honoring lifestyle. I truly believe this. It It does us absolutely no good to point at someone and say, you need to stop doing this or God is going to judge you or God is going to... That's not going to do anything. Their heart needs to be given to Jesus first. And Jesus is big enough. He's better than you and I at leading them and showing them that this isn't a God-honoring thing. And then the conviction comes. The the Bible says the Holy Spirit brings conviction. 
the Holy Spirit convicts them and they begin to come to those who have loved them the way Christ loves and they'll say, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing this. How, what do I do? What, how, can I, how can I get through this? How can I overcome this? And then we're there to help them. We're, we're there to walk through it with them. We're not there to say, God won't fully accept you until you stop doing this, until you change this. That's not the way it works. Faith involves trusting Jesus to lead. The reality is that some people will not listen to you, and they will not listen to God, to God and they will do their own thing. And here's a truth that, that Missy and I heard in a sermon that has just stuck in my mind ever since. God loves people who may never love him back. And he knows it, but he loves them anyway. Sometimes we would like to sit down and say, God, they're never going to love you back. You're wasting your time. What, what would God say? They're my creation. Until their last breath, I'm going after them. And we think that way because if it was your son or daughter and you know, they were infatuated with someone and you, said, and you knew that this person didn't love them back, you'd sit them down and say, look, honey, they, they, don't, they don't think the same way about you as you do about them. You're only going to be hurt if you do this. God's not going to be hurt by it. Okay? God, is, God is okay. He's not going to become less of himself if he loves someone that won't love him back. God created them. And as we talked about last week, God so loves. He's compelled to love them. He can't help it. He is love. It's not in his nature to not love. Ever. It's not in his nature to ever stop loving. So we've got to understand that God loves people that will never love him back and he loves them anyway. So it doesn't matter how they respond to something. It doesn't matter how, you know, if they're hateful towards you or whatever. Love them anyway. God knows this. He's old. He doesn't need our counsel on how to love people. If God will not give up until a person's last breath, then neither should we. See, free will is the one thing that God gave us that he chose not to control. He said, I'm not going to control your choices because that's not really love. So he is going to be going after people and loving them until the last breath of their life on earth. So if God's method is to draw people to him, not counting men's sins against them, why should our method be any different? Do we think... Are we naive enough to think that we have a method that's better than God's? So, okay, God, you're, it's obviously not working, so let me help you out here. It's not. Now, loving people, it, it, takes, it takes work. It takes a longer time. It takes patience because people, especially today, people are, are very slow to trust. They're very slow to believe that someone loves them. And really... They have good reason to. There's so many times that people have gotten hurt, that people have shown themselves to be hypocrites, that it does take time. But the Bible says that God is patient. God is long-suffering, so we need to be as well. Because in the end, even though it may take longer for that person to make a decision, when it's out of love and not out of they got scared or says, oh yeah, I don't want to go to hell, but it's out of love, that's going to be much more effective and, and they're going to be compelled to tell others. It's not just going to be, oh, okay, now I'm not going to hell, but it's, wow, God really loves me. I need to tell others. I want to raise my kids knowing that. I want to, I want to tell my mom and dad. I want to tell my brothers and sisters. 
It's much more effective. Jesus didn't enter into pointless debates. Debates that were usually intended to trap him anyway. But instead, he would always turn those conversations back to the hearts of the people. The adulterous woman came. said, Jesus, this man was caught in adultery. The law says that she should be stoned. Now that, did, that is what the law said. Jesus was technically breaking the law by saying, don't, well, he never said don't stone her. But he was breaking the law by supporting her. Do you realize that? He was breaking the Jewish law. But what did he say? Okay, whoever of you has no sin, you can throw the first stone. He turned it back to their hearts. And what did they say? Wow, I guess I'm out. One by one, the stones dropped. Jesus looked and said, where, where have they gone? There's no one here to accuse you? No, no one. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. It was his love. He, he constantly interacted with prostitutes, with adulterers, with lepers, with, uh, with task collectors, with people that nobody else wanted to touch, let alone be around. Jesus not only interacted with them, but he touched them, he loved them, he, he ministered to them. And he often did it in front of the religious people. Because he was trying to show them, he was trying to get their minds right. and say, look, you're not getting it, so I'll show you. On 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a verse that I think some people have misinterpreted and they've misunderstood its meaning. I'm just going to read a few verses 1 Peter three fifteen to 18. Peter writes this. He says, In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous and for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I'll stop there. But people take this scripture that says, always be prepared to give an answer. And they say, well, anytime something comes up, we've got to tell people that that's a sin. We've got to tell people they can't do that. That's not what Jesus, that's not what Peter said there. He said, be prepared to give an answer when you're asked to give a reason for the hope you have. He didn't say, be prepared to tell everyone what's a sin and what's not a sin. Be prepared to tell people how they're in the wrong. He said, be prepared to tell people the reason that you have hope. The reason I have hope isn't because this is a sin or this is a sin or that's a sin. The reason I have hope is because Jesus died for my sin. He's alive today. And one day when I die, I'm going to be with him. That's my hope. It has nothing to do with sin. Peter didn't say, be prepared to give your opinion on every issue under the sun. Some of us don't even need to be asked about an issue before we start offering our thoughts. Many Christians do that. And it's, it's so frustrating because it makes, it makes Christ look petty and look bad. When you say it, that he makes him look bad. We need to stop being a people that are so reactionary. And we need to learn from Jesus not to give in to these traps. Okay? Famous, famous Christians, people that have kind of celebrity status or who are, in, you know, who are out there a little bit more, when they're interviewed and when people, there's always going to be times where someone's going to try to trap them into something. Oh, well, what do you think about gay marriage? Or what do you think about this? 
it, it boggles my mind how people continue to fall to this trap and give an answer that, while maybe biblical, the whole point is to chastise him. Oh, he's a horrible person. He thinks... That, and then you lose your effectiveness. You, you don't have to address every question and have to have an answer for everything. Okay, it doesn't mean you're compromising the word. It just means that, you know what? Man, that's not my area. God is the judge. Who am, I to, who am I to judge sin? Because I'm a sinner. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner apart from Christ. And I believe that whoever comes to Jesus, if they truly give their heart to Jesus, that he will lead them. doesn't mean I'll shy away from those things, but we've got we to stop thinking we've got to have the answer to everything and that we've got to be God's mouthpiece all the time. Okay, notice Paul says he has committed to us the message of, of reconciliation. God has given us the message, the ministry of reconciliation, not the job of reconciliation. And there's a big difference. He's given us the message. He didn't say, now go and make people find peace with me. He didn't say, go and make people change. He said, go tell them, go tell them about my peace. Go tell them about what I've done and how I've reconciled them, of how I've, I've made a way where they don't have to be separated from me. He says, we are his ambassadors, official representatives. But when you're an ambassador, you're a representative of the message. You're not, you're not given absolute power to go do things the way you want and the way you think is right. God says, I've given you the message. Now take this message and go tell people about the message. Everybody with me? And then Paul continues on. He says, it's as though God is making his appeal through us. It's God that makes the appeal through you, not you that makes the appeal on his behalf. And there's a big difference. Because when it's God making the appeal through us, he's going to lead us in how to do it. When we're the ones making the appeal for him, we're saying, okay, God, I got this. You just hang back. And it's not going to work. And when it comes to this, understanding of the word is essential to being God's ambassador, to being his representative. Too many people make claims for Jesus based on something they've heard or read secondhand, whether it be uh, an article, gossip, hearsay, um, an interview they saw from somebody else who gave an opinion, instead of their own study of the word. Okay, that's just lazy theology, for one, and it's damaging to the cause of Christ. Instead of seeing it from a kingdom of God perspective. There are things you may have experienced in church, you may have experienced as a Christian, that, that aren't, that, where there's no biblical precedence for. You can't simply be led by your experience, by what you've always believed. You've got to let the word of God lead you, even when it leads you in places that don't make sense, even when it's tough, even when it conflicts with what you've always believed. You say, whoa, wait a minute. The word of God says this. So this is what I've been taught, what I've believed, but the word of God says this. You, have, you always have to side with the word of God. Your feelings can lie to you. Your experiences are, are half-truths, sometimes complete lies. The Word of God has to be the, what leads you. 
Even in, even American courts, they don't allow hearsay for a reason. They only allow people to be witnesses that have direct, first-hand contact or first-hand experience. Otherwise, there's no point in bringing you up because it's something you heard or something you read. The New Testament was written entirely by first-generation Christians. People who saw Jesus, who interacted with Jesus, who were there to see what happened. Okay, even Paul. Now, Paul wasn't one of the disciples at the beginning, but he saw Jesus. He knew what Jesus' ministry was about, and then Jesus appeared to him after he resurrected. But every writer of the New Testament was a first-generation Christian that experienced Christ. They saw him. They were there. That's why there's no writings from people that are multiple generations out because it's they're writing on something this guy said and this what they heard these guys wrote on what they saw what they experienced themselves and ultimately they were led by the holy spirit we must be led by the word of god alone like i said even when it leads you in ways that don't make sense or that clash with what you have read heard or experienced yourself that's what being born again is about, that you are born anew. You say, okay, God, I'm forgetting everything I've known before. Reteach me. Re- I need to relearn from the kingdom perspective now, not from the worldly perspective. Paul then says, we implore you. Okay, implore, implore is we beg you, we plead you, we urge. For the sake of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthian church. Okay, he's writing to people who have largely received Christ as their Savior. He's saying, I, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, be at peace with God. Understand what, what God has done through Jesus in reconciliation. He says, find peace with God through Jesus and walk with the peace of God in your heart so that you may carry out this ministry of reconciliation. Because until you understand who Jesus is and who you are in him, how can you ever tell someone else about him? He says, I implore you. That God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Anyone who receives Jesus Their sin has been forgiven and they've become the righteousness of God. So let me say it again. Sin is not the issue for you and I to focus on. Okay, sin is the the source of conflict. But you and I, we should not be dealing with sin. Why? Because you and I are sinners. Okay, sending sinners to to rid the world of sin is like sending a Detroit Lion into a Super Bowl locker room to tell them how to win the Super Bowl. The Lions don't know anything about it. They've never been to the Super Bowl, let alone won the thing. So why in the world would God send sinners to go rid the world of sin? Can, can, we, at least, can we at least say that, wow, that makes sense. I'm a sinner. Why would God ever trust me to rid the world of sin? Because I still have a sinful nature and I still struggle sometimes. Who am I to point the finger at someone else? But Jesus can. Why? Because he's the only one that had no sin. That's why I said God made him who had no sin to become your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. 
We don't know what it's like to not be sinful. So why would God use us to rid the world of sin? We don't understand. I mean, we have an understanding that through Jesus, I'm covered. But we don't know what it means to live without sin. Because from the earliest, you can remember, you were a good sinner. Okay, one of the first words kids learn is mine. It's not yours, yours, share. It's mine. I want, I need. Okay, they, they learn how to get what they need and what they want. You did too. We are good at sinning. We are not good at not sinning. So why would God trust us to rid the world of sin? It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to close here. And um, Nessie, could you go downstairs and just let the kids know? We're going to bring the kids up and we're going to share communion as as an entire church, as families today here in a moment. So I'm going to begin to close here, but in chapter 6, the first two verses, Paul goes on. It's kind of part of this this same uh, conversation. Paul says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That's a, a quote from Isaiah. But Paul says, as fellow workers, in other words, we're just like you. You may look at us and think that we're, we're fellow workers. That's all we are. He said, and because we're like you, we urge you, don't take God's grace in vain. Okay, the word used for in vain, it means empty-handed, without effect. Don't receive God's grace without letting it affect you. It's more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. But God wants you and I to experience life, joy, and peace here on earth in the here and now as well as as we await our home in heaven. He wants you to experience life, that's salvation. He wants you to experience joy, that's celebration. And he wants you to experience peace, reconciliation. These are the three things we've been talking about. And Paul closes by saying, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You see, you don't have to just just push through this life until you get to the end. He says, yeah, you're going to face troubles, but God wants you to have life on this earth. He wants you to have peace on this earth. He wants you to have joy. It's not something He wants, wants you to just survive until the time comes to be with Him. And all of this happened because of one baby born over 2,000 years ago. Okay, that's why, that's why Christmas is such a powerful time. It's not about the baby, but it's about what the baby grew up to be and what he became as he gave his life. He lived a life without sin. He died on a cross. He became your sin and my sin. And then he rose from the dead because the grave could not keep him because he was not a sinner. And through him, we've all been saved. We've all been given life. We've all been given something to celebrate God's amazing love. And we've been made at peace with God. God says, I have, I have given you peace with me. Now I want you to go tell others about that peace. Because I've done it for them too. So we're going to close here. And if you would, could you just close your eyes just for a moment?
got three quick questions. The first one, if you're in this place and you've never given your heart to the Lord, you say, you know, Pastor, I, I've sat in church and I've heard the messages and I don't know if I understood or if I, or, or what my problem was, but today I understand what the Lord has done for me in sending Jesus. And I want to give my heart to Him because I want to be at peace with God. How many of you would raise a hand and say, I need to give my heart to the Lord. I want to become a Christian. The next question I want to ask is, how many of you would say, you know, Pastor, I have, I've received the Lord, I've received His sacrifice. But I'm not really walking with the peace of God in my heart. I understand that, that I'm struggling in that area. I'm, I'm anxious. I worry way too much. Um, I, I, let, I let the things of the world get to me in ways that, that I know the Lord wouldn't have, me, uh, wouldn't have me react that way. How many of you be honest enough to raise a hand and say, Yeah, Pastor, right? Could you pray? I need peace in my heart. Thank you for your honesty. About three or four hands that went up. And the last thing I want to say, and I won't ask for a response because I hope this is what we all want. But in Matthew 5, chapter 9, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We've been talking about sonship, how Jesus has made us sons of God through his, through his death and his resurrection. But Jesus says, those who are peacemakers, not those who, who make people find peace, but those who minister the peace of God to others, they are the sons of God. So he's saying if you have given your heart to the Lord, if you have been saved, your calling, your commission is to be a peacemaker, is to minister the reconciliation of God. How God gave his life, gave his son to save you, to, to give you something to celebrate his amazing love, and to bring you peace, not only peace with him, but peace on earth, peace with others, and to share that peace. I just want you to, to kind of think, to think on that, to think on what it means to be a peacemaker. I just want to, I want to close this in prayer. There were, there were a handful of you that raised your hands when it came to saying, you know, I need peace with, I need the peace of God in my heart. So if you could just, if you'd close your eyes with me, I just want to close this in prayer. And you certainly don't have to feel, don't feel uh, like you have to go right away. If you want prayer, stick around. Uh, Otherwise, we'll dismiss you and and hope you have a blessed day and hope that we're able to come back tonight for this uh, great play. But Father, we thank you once more for who you are. We thank you that through Jesus, not only did you bring salvation on that first Christmas, not only did did you bring something to celebrate? You brought great joy to the people because the Savior had come. But God, you had brought about reconciliation. You brought about peace. Where there was once a separation between man and God, you fixed it through Jesus. We don't worship a baby today. We worship the man Jesus and the God Jesus who lived on earth. He, he lived a perfect life. He gave his life and now today he has been raised from the dead and he sits at your right hand, Father. He reigns over us. He leads us. He has given us His Holy Spirit to empower us to live this life. We know that ultimately our home is in heaven, but we also believe, God, that You saved us so that we could have life and joy and peace even in the here and now, even when things seem crazy, that we would have peace in our hearts. And God, I pray for those who raised their hands and said, 
yeah, I need some peace in my heart today. I pray that you would do that, Lord. Bring, bring your word to life in their hearts and, and show them, God, that it's not anything they do to find peace, but it's who they trust in. That when those times come and they want to, Lord, they want to worry, they want to be anxious, I pray that your word would prompt them and say, no, I don't need to be anxious. Jesus has given me peace, and I receive that peace, and I, I claim that peace for my life. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we don't have to worry, we don't have to be anxious, because even though things aren't as they should be here, you're still at work, and there's one day when we'll all be with you together, God. How we wait for that day, how we long for that day. But Lord, we know you're here now. We worship you now. We love you now. We know that you're with us, that you'll lead us, you'll guide us, that you've brought us healing, you've brought us peace, you've brought us salvation. And we want to live, God, for you. We want to live radical lives that show people of your love and of your grace and of your peace. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.